Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth once again, and we're happy to have Jason Wood with us. Jason serves dentists throughout the United States, both buyers and sellers, and speaks nationally, and uh, his company has uh, been involved in over 7,000, uh, worked with over 7,000 dentists, and Jason, we're pleased to have you with us today. Well, thank you, sir. Well, today, Jason, we're gonna start off with a topic of credentialing. You know, many times when practices change hands, there are issues with getting the uh, the buyer credentialed, and you know that it's, you've got to get the LLC and get the EIN, and then they've they've got to apply, and sometimes credentialing holds up um, whether it needs to or it doesn't need to. Hopefully, you'll address that. Holds up closing sometimes. So perhaps you could start in and, and share your thoughts with us about uh, credentialing for practice buyers. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, thanks for letting me be here. Um, yeah, insurance credentialing has become almost a, a battlefield in itself. And there's a lot of different opinions on this. And at the end of the day, my position as an advisor is I, I don't care which road we go down, but there is definitely a road that, that we, we cannot go down at all. And that is having the buyer close on a transaction where they would then be out of network. Um, and then they are making they're they're making application to the insurance companies after the closing date because the wonderful company known as Delta, uh, as well as a few others, um, will send letters to all of the patients of the practice saying, did you realize that your dentist is out of network and does not take your insurance? Here is a list of 500 other people within a five mile radius that do take the insurance um, that you have. And so for me, we just, as a buyer, you can never close on a transaction because of Delta really, I mean, militarizing, if you will, this insurance game. And so, um, the, the, the multiple avenues that I recommend, and I don't care which way sellers and buyers go, but you know, one way of doing it is the buyer has a period of time after the closing date to bill under the seller's provider status. Um, we place this into the purchase agreement or we have a side letter between um, the parties and this allows the buyer to continue treatment of the 
practice patients while they are making application to the insurance companies. All the insurance companies know that this takes place. You have a very strong argument with respect to access to care, with respect to continuity of care for these patients. Um, so that's one way that we, we recommend doing it. Uh, the other, the other, and by the way, the reason why we have to do that is because many times these practice sales are confidential. The staff don't know about it. And if the staff don't know about it, the buyer can't make application because guess what? The insurance companies send letters to the practice address. Even though the buyer says, no, 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 use my home address. They will send stuff to the practice. They will call the practice. And now all of a sudden, the staff starts wondering, well, who is this person? And why do the insurance keep, uh, companies keep calling? So it can become a mess. Um, now, if the staff knows about it, not a problem. We can actually go forward with making application to the insurance companies prior to the closing date. But everybody needs to be on board with this. So another um, what some brokers, uh, very few brokers do, um, but they do it and I, I, I like what they do. Um, they have everything signed prior to the closing date. So the purchase agreement is signed, everything is signed, ready to go. Then the buyer makes application to the insurance companies. Once those insurance companies provide the provider status to the buyer, boom, the closing date occurs. So the staff knows that there's a transition taking place. Um, the, the, the buyer is introduced to the staff prior to the closing date. So everybody's okay. The, the possible concern here is we have this time period where we've signed documents and the closing date is in, in the future and the staff get worried about job security and they start leaving. That's the one possible negative associated with that type of model. Uh, but it can be done and it's done very successfully. So, but again, taking away, do, as a buyer, do not close being out of network with insurance companies because that, that can be the death knell of your practice because a lot of patients will find somebody else instead. Got it. Well, let's move on into um, uh, another area then. Thanks for sharing on credentialing. Could you please share with us uh, the experience that private sales, uh, uh, an individual buyer with a private practice purchase might experience uh, with, say, walkaway sales versus um, uh, seller employment post-closing? What are you uh, seeing uh, with, what would you uh, comment on comparing the walkaways versus the uh, um post-closing employment of the sellers in regard to private practice sales? If the practice isn't big enough to adequately support um, a second provider, um, I don't recommend the seller staying on post-closing. I mean, obviously there's a transition period of time in which the seller stays, but if the practice isn't doing over say 900 to a million dollars, it doesn't make economic sense for the seller to stay on. Um, Unfortunately, the biggest uh, percent of deals that I see the sellers wanting to stay on are those practices that are only doing five or 600,000. Well, right. th there's, just, there's just not enough revenue to, to support the seller staying on. Uh, 
Right. So it really comes down to the, the practice itself. Um, having the seller stay on can be awesome, but it can also be really bad if the seller has buyers, uh, seller's remorse or it has a, a personality type that just can't let go. Um, so that, that can be a negative, but I've also been involved with many deals where the seller is just a complete advocate for the new buyer and the relationship is great. So it come, unfortunately it comes down to the, the parties involved and the, the personalities involved. Um, but, uh, obviously when a seller is selling to a DSO or, or a group or something like that, the seller staying on is actually predicated on the deal itself. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, the next item, what about, uh, and we, we addressed this a little bit previously about, uh, earn out, about seller financing, but we didn't, we didn't talk about earnouts. Uh, where do you see hundred percent lender financing, uh, with, uh, uh, these sales and, and maybe you could talk to private equity a little bit if you get into uh, DSOs or small groups. So, you know, 100% lending on private uh, sales tends to be the, the norm still. I mean, I don't see too much of where I see a problem with earnouts actually is with respect to COVID, where we have, you know, 2019 numbers were, say, a million dollars. And now 2020 numbers are 700. And 2021 numbers haven't come back to those million dollar numbers. That's where I see earnouts taking place. Um, where look, we'll we'll credit you those 2019 numbers, but you're not currently on pace to match those for 2021. So we're going to give you your purchase price, but we are going to create an earnout where we have to get back to those 2019 numbers within 12 months, 24 months, whatever, in order for you to get X percent of the purchase price. Um, that's where I see them happen a lot. Or where I see them happen a lot is with these larger than life personalities or very highly cosmetic based practices where you know, a, there can be a significant fluctuation in, um, in future revenue based upon the, the individual characteristics and particulars of those unique practices, if you will. So we, we see earnouts there as well. Um, or, you know, maybe the, the seller got hurt um, or there was a surgery and they were out for two or three months and their numbers aren't showing what they used to be. So there, there'll be an earn out there sometimes. But then if we're switching over to private equity or DSOs or corporate or whatever, there's almost always some type of earn out, whether it's a holdback, whether it is a, a bump in purchase price, if we get to X either collections or X uh, EBITDA, um, then you'll get a bonus of some sort. Um, it, it really comes down to how they phrase it, but at the end of the day, either way, it's a it's an earnout or it's a holdback where it's predicated upon future revenues or future profit. So um, you just need to be aware of that. And if you are selling to a DSO or um, you know private equity, expect that to be a, a part of the the purchase price. 
is the earnout difficult to achieve and are sellers sometimes uh, frustrated with their ability to impact the collections of the practice? In other words, they're not the practice owners anymore, so they can't control what happens in the practice, but yet they're being paid in earnout based on what the practice does in the future. So I'm going to take that in two ways. So to a private buyer, 100% absolutely correct. Um, that is an issue for sellers. How do you protect yourself? You can't protect yourself fully. Um, you have to base it on just the concept that the buyer wants to make money. They want to be successful. So they are going to be working. However, how do you protect yourself? Well, you put in requirements that the buyer does, you know, either continues the historical days open, hours open, um, so that they're not capitalizing on that earnout and maybe taking more vacation or cutting back or doing something else. Um, so you can you can build in protections. Can you build in protections that would protect you 100% of the time? No but you should definitely be putting in at least some stopgap measures with respect to protecting that earnout. Um, with respect to private equity, this it really, really depends on who you're selling to because, uh, and I, there are certain DSOs that place 100% of the risk um, on you, the seller, that we hit future revenues. And what I mean by that is, is, well, I big DSO don't necessarily like your systems. So we're going to put our own systems in, we're going to put in our own collection policies in, and we're going to do it right after the closing date because you're, you seller are bearing all the risk if there's a drop in revenue. Um, we're also probably going to replace your employees because we think your employees are making too much money. And so now all of a sudden, I mean, there's literal economic incentives for the DSO to do that because if the revenues drop, well, they've already have a form of insurance and the fact that they don't have to pay out your future revenue. So it really, really matters who you sell to as a DSO because you need to know what it looks like moving forward. There are certain DSOs that they'll acquire you and nothing changes. Um, and then there are others and I, gosh, I want to name names, but I won't, um, <laughs> that they come in and completely revamp everything. And I've had, I've had clients who have, I mean, 25 million, $40 million, uh, sales where, I mean, they've called me crying because they had multi-million dollar earnouts that they weren't they weren't hitting and it had nothing to do with them. It had to do with the fact that the DSO came in and completely changed everything. And this person who was working four days a week is now working seven days a week and they're doing multiple jobs because they're trying to hit that earnout when literally the DSO just dropped the bomb on the practice. Wow. That's a shame with, um, with each kind of sale, whether it be to a, a private, an individual, uh, an individual buyer, or to a small group or DSO, uh, what what are your thoughts about uh, buyer sophistication and buyer readiness? Maybe there's the same for all three levels. I don't know, or, or types of sales. Well, buyer readiness is going to be in favor of the DSOs. Um, 
and buyer sophistication as well. The, that doesn't necessarily bode well for the seller though on the sophistication. Um, a sale to a private individual, the seller is going to have a lot more negotiation, a lot more power than a seller selling to a DSO that has a certain framework that they work in. Uh, and oftentimes is not controlled by the DSO, it's oftentimes controlled by the private equity. So just because a buyer is more sophisticated and maybe the process is more streamlined and is maybe devoid of emotion, doesn't necessarily transfer into a better overall experience for a seller. So, um, but readiness, if, if a DSO is providing you a, a letter of intent, oftentimes they're, they're ready to acquire. So, um, you know, the, the sophistication or, or lack thereof can actually be a, a benefit to a seller um, with a lack of sophistication to a private buyer. So I think it, it depends. And even though you, you think that you have a sophisticated buyer doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. I guess is the way to say it. Got it. Uh, DSOs or small groups, they may have purchased dozens, hundreds, or thousands of practices and uh, really know what they're doing. And the sellers, it may be the first time that they've ever sold a practice. So it seems like uh, the higher level of sophistication of the buyer, the, the greater disadvantage the seller might be at if they don't have good representation. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on this episode of Long in the Tooth. And if listeners wanted to get in touch with you, could you please share your contact information? Uh, sure. Uh, it, the email, jason at dentalattorneys.com. Phone number 800-499-1474. And then the website, dentalattorneys.com. And uh, yeah, just good articles, good podcasts on there. Uh, if, if you're a, uh, if you have the inability to sleep one night. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Jason. We certainly appreciate it. You're welcome.